0: (laughs) My absolute favorite sermon bumper of all time, right there. Welcome to uh, Birds Do It, Bees Do It. Week two, we're talking about biblical sexuality. And uh, last weekend, we looked at the fact that being created male and female is part of the image of God. And there are two ways to live out your sexuality in a biblically compatible way. One is in uh, in a a marriage relationship uh, that is a that is pure according to God's eyes and God's guidelines. And the second is in a sexually pure single relationship. And uh, this weekend, we're going to do a deeper dive in this. And if I had to subtitle the message, I would call it Fake Sexual News. The fake news uh, basically says it's your body, it's your choice, it's the way you are. Live like you feel. But instead, I'd like to welcome all of us to really a lifelong struggle that uh, is spoken of in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it says there in verse 19, "Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price; therefore glorify God in your body." My body, my choice? Nope. Not from a biblical perspective and a biblical worldview. Far too many people are not living that way, even people who would profess to be believers. We've allowed culture to creep into our worldview and our convictions. And uh, to jump right in, I'm, I'm going to ask I don't think it will happen. Uh, I asked last service, didn't ask Saturday night, that didn't happen. But if by chance I step on a pet peeve of yours or in a good way, I, I'd ask you not to applaud. Because applause with a subject and in a crowd like this can actually be divisive rather than creating the kind of unity that we're looking for around this issue. So let's talk about the Bible. The Bible, if you have the app, you can follow along on these points. The Bible identifies the tension and the temptation. Would you say tension and temptation? Because there are both. And uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. The Bible says that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Let me stop there for a moment, kind of unpack this as we go. We see in the creation characteristics of the creator. I'm not a great art but I have looked at enough of Vincent van Gogh's paintings that you can pretty much tell when you're looking at a Vincent van Gogh painting and when you're not. Definitely not Rembrandt, because there are certain stylings and things that van Gogh puts in his creation that Rembrandt does not. If you are a fan of Food Network, And you had three dishes in front of you, you could probably tell which one was Bobby Flay's and which one was whoever. You could tell the chef because they have their own stylings. There's something of the creator in the creation. Likewise, we see God's nature in what He's made. Among other things, I can tell you for sure God is a relational being, He longs for relationship. Because in us, we are relational beings. It is universal. In fact, the strictest punishment we can come up with in a civilized society is to put a person in solitary confinement. Why is that so universally punishing? Because we are all made relational beings by the one who made us. God's a God who appreciates beauty. All it takes is a sunrise or a sunset to kind of tell you that. And so here we see that we're without excuse we can see the, the nature of God and what he's created. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And just side note, gratitude is one of the healthiest things you can do in life, and it's one of the best ways to live a fulfilled life is to be grateful. <clears throat> but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened to the frustrated Christian who is seeing a culture more and more adopt the opposite of biblical truth, understand a spiritual dynamic is happening in the darkening of the hearts of men and women. Professing to be wise, they became fools. I can't tell you how many times that verse pops in my mind when I hear the foolishness of our current culture. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We don't want to walk by faith. We want to walk by sight. You can go through archaeological digs around the world. There's always these relics that they worshipped because we'd rather worship something we can control than to worship God. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And there is the temptation and the tension. I want to serve the creature. I want to serve the creature, not the Creator. The Creator tells me that when someone treats me poorly, I'm not to return evil for evil. And there are times, I don't know about you, I want to return evil. Can I get an honest amen? Amen. And so I'm tempted to serve the creature rather than the creator. There are times I might not want to tell the truth. The creator says, no, honesty. And so I want to serve the creature rather than the creator. When it comes to my sexual life and sexual behavior, I want to serve the creature rather than the creator. And we want to, we want to indulge our appetites, our desires, our ambitions, our whatever, regardless of what the creator has written for us in his owner's manual. And there is a constant tension between the creature and and the creator. Our culture is saying, forget the creator, serve the creature. And when it comes to sexuality, I, I kind of had this thought this morning as I was coming into work. <clears throat> it was like 7:27 or so. And I was about a mile from, from CLC, and all the street lights went off at the same time. Boop. I thought, ah, oh. so actually last week it was 8:30, right? And so we had daylight savings time, conspiracy theory, whatever. Look at what we've done. We all as a culture said, let's do this. Let's fool ourselves. And let's all agree, only works if we all agree, let's all agree to set our clocks back an hour. And even though it's 8.30, we're going to say it's 7.30. (laughs) And we all said, "Okay." And then guess what? In April or whatever it is, we're going to say, let's all fool ourselves again. And let's all agree that it's not 7.30. Now it's 8.30. And we're all going to go, okay. (laughs) We can be convinced. It's sort of like we're doing that with with sexuality. Let's all agree that what God says isn't really what is. And, and it's our body and it's our choice and it's our feelings and that's the right temple for sexuality. And we're like, okay. And we'll see the foolishness of that as we unpack it. Uh, and the second point says, identifies what I would rather not say and people don't want to hear. I like preaching stuff that you love to hear. I like it when people are smiling at me and I'm preaching and like, they're like, good job, you're a great guy. This is not one of those messages. And <laughs> what is dive in? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. The Bible says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Stop there for a second. Let me just remind you, you do not get to heaven by being a good person and making sure you don't hurt anybody. Heaven is not a good place. Heaven is a perfect place, and the only way in is to know Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive you your sins, surrender your life to him, be your Lord and Savior, and that is how your name gets written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you go to heaven. Heaven is a righteous place, not an unrighteous place. And so that's why the Bible says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is the direction of your life. It's the inclination of your passion. Are you trying to honor God, or are you saying, I'll live the way the creature wants to live? Neither, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, that's the word pornea, from which we get the word pornography, is a general word for sexual immorality. You can throw sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, oral sex, all those kinds of things that's, that's not your marriage partner. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. I didn't say that. The Bible said that. Such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There is hope, there is transformational hope, but basically those sexual sins along with other forms of unrighteousness, if that is the practice and what you condone in your life, the Bible says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is not a popular thing to say. It's awkward to hear. It's even more awkward to deliver, especially in today's culture. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Timothy that there's coming a time that people want to have their ears tickled, so to speak, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and turn away their ears from truth And that's what's happening today. One of my frustrations when it comes to this area that's so central to our identity, my maleness and my femaleness, that there are other people, you can go to other places called church and people will tell you what you want to hear, that basically, you know what, your body, your choice, just, just go ahead and do whatever, don't hurt somebody. But Ephesians 4 says we should speak the truth in love and we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, the church, of the church. And to draw an analogy, let's just say that before service, I don't know, maybe there was a spill on the platform and our facility team had to come up and clean it and they didn't have anything else to use. They didn't know about, this is my water glass. And let's just say they put some kind of cleaning solvent in here to clean the spill. Let's also say that the cleaning solvent is poison. And if I were to drink that accidentally, I would be dead. And so they say to me before service, hey, Pastor Sam, we're cleaning this up. That's poison in there, so be careful. That's not your water glass. We'll get you a new glass. And so let's just further that story that they cleaned it up, and whoops, sound check, and then service started, and they forgot to take the water and exchange it. And I realized that, and so I tell myself, note to self, do not drink that or you will be dead. Okay, got that? So let's just say that you are so eager to come to church today and your car wouldn't start, you couldn't get a ride. Let's just say you ran to church, okay? And you got here and you are just, man, you are, you are dehydrated, you're famished, you're just really thirsty. And you come sit right down front. And, and so you, you say, hey, you, you don't mind, I, I am so thirsty. And, and you start to drink it. Now, should I say to myself, uh Ryan's so thirsty, I'm, I'm going to let him have it. What, what would you say? Whoa, time out. Stop him. It's going to kill him. Oh, but he's so thirsty. What kind of pastor are you? You say you care about somebody, but he's about to drink poison, and you're not going to stop him? The most unloving thing I could do for you is tell you what will lead you to hell is not going to lead you to hell. The most unloving thing I could do is say, oh, if that's your lifestyle, if that's your desire, if that's who you are, if that's what you feel, just go with it. Speaking the truth in love is saying, you know what, whoa, I know it's a struggle, I know it's an issue, I know whatever, and and we'll deal with that, but you can't go there or you'll be damned. So I feel a responsibility to speak truth, unpopular truth, difficult truth in as loving a way as I can. And I know when it comes to sexuality, this is a page, a, a place that goes huge. It goes deep for us. It's a source of shame. Many of you are revisiting scars in your life right now as I talk. It can be a source of great pain, whether it was sexual sin done to you, that you brought on yourself, a place of regret, For families, it can be a huge source of struggle over loved ones, uh, sons, daughters, whatever whatever the case might be, extended family, a huge source of pain and difficulty. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible says that fornicators, adulterers, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. They'll destroy your eternity. And so let's talk about being guilty in the presence of Jesus. And I am not naive enough to think this is only hypothetical. And we sing about the presence of Christ, and we have Christ within us, the hope of glory. And so I believe that Christ is present with us in this place. So it is not a hypothetical. In the presence of Jesus today, what is it like? What should it be like for those of you who are at this moment guilty when it comes to sexual sin? We look at a story in John chapter 8, if you remember from the summer series, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court in the temple. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, I always wonder, how did they do that? My second question is, where's the guy? But they're trying to show that the law says, and they were experts in the Old Testament, That adultery, you're stoned to death. And they probably had rocks in hand. What does Jesus do? You know the story, we went over it. Um, He says, Well, I'll tell you what, why doesn't the one who doesn't have any sin cast the first stone? The Bible says, Beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their rocks and they left. After a few awkward, intense moments and the silence is deafening, Jesus says to her, well, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? And she says in verse 11, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. What we see there in the presence of Jesus is there is not condemnation, but there is conviction. I don't condemn you either. Stop it. Doing about-face. That's what repentance is. We've talked many times before, when I am guilty of sin and I feel convicted, my proper response is to repent of it with a sense of remorse. When I repent of it, I am forgiven. And when I am forgiven, there is no condemnation. And then repentance means an about-face. I stop doing the sinful behavior and I go in a God-honoring direction. For that woman, there wasn't condemnation. Well, you and all the, whatever he could have unloaded on her. Well, I don't condemn you either. But you know your life doesn't line up. Stop it. Get out of the relationship. Walk a new way. And so today we're going to look at four areas of guilt that I am certain in varying degrees I'm talking to people that are there now, both here and online. We're going to talk about porn. We're going to talk about homosexuality. We're going to talk about transgenderism. We're going to talk about sex outside of marriage, whether it's before or during. And so let's dive into the first area, pornography. And a sub-note to that is purity matters. It matters to God. It matters for you whether you know it or not. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, it is a verse that applies Jesus said you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The next two verses, Jesus gets really intense and extreme. He says if your eye causes you to to offend you, pluck it out. It's better to go into the afterlife to heaven with one eye gone or your eyes gone and be restored there than to go to hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut, (coughs) cut it off. It's better to go into the, in the eternity without a hand and be restored with your glorified body than to go to hell completely whole. Drastic measures. So if what you're seeing on a screen, whatever size causes you to lust after someone, go to drastic measures to no longer do that. Now, there's an interesting side note to this whole idea of pornography that... that enhances our understanding of God's idea of sexuality in the first place. So let's hold that for a moment. Let's go to another instance in life. I want to take a quick poll, all right? No trick questions here. How many of you, over the years, have ever changed your preference or your taste or whatever for the kind of food you eat, what you drink, what you like on entertainment, whether it's TV or streaming or what format you use, or you have... You used to have some friends. They're not friends anymore. Or you've changed jobs that you like better or decorations in your home or you used to live there. Now I live here. How many of you have had preferences and choices and you've changed those over time? All of us. So imagine this. Imagine how incredible God was when Jesus talked about you know, male and female created he them. What the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God created marriage till death do you part. How many of you will be honest enough to say that's an uphill climb? Would you say amen? I got the courage to preach this. You can at least have the courage to affirm the truth. I remember when, when we had our 10th anniversary it was the stupidest thing I've ever done as a married person. Um, I didn't manage my schedule correctly and I got kind of roped into um, going on a riverboat cruise, my wife and I, with our senior citizens on the Ohio River on our 10th anniversary. That's the kind of saint my wife is. And so we're celebrating 10 years on this cruise. Now, they did us a huge service because we're with all these people that are now as old as I am now. And, and, and I remember one couple said, there are times in our marriage, if it we weren't for God, we'd have never stayed together. I was like, what? These are like you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And that whole circle of senior citizens that were standing there on the deck of that ship, on that boat, they also, oh man, for sure. I'm like, serious? Oh, there are times if it weren't for God, there's no way we'd have stayed together. And so if you're married very long, you can be in that club. (laughs) Can I get an amen now? All right. We're getting a little more honest, right? So look at the genius of God. This is definitely a good job God moment, okay? God knows it's an uphill climb to pick, I mean, to think about this, you're going to pick one person, opposite sex. You're going to be married to them. For better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sickness and health, keeping yourself only unto them until death do you part 50, 60 years later. Woo, that's an uphill climb. (laughs) So God says, I'm going to help you in this because I'm going to create mechanisms in society you're probably even going to be aware of unless you just research. And I am, God, so when a husband and wife have sexual intercourse. And when that starts with, you know, the husband kind of noticing his wife who is scantily clad, shall we say? Man, we're hard on honesty today. OK. Um, you know, then I got to pray harder for you guys. Man, things start to happen. I mean, when I, when I, because men tend to be visually oriented. Whoa. And, Scientists will tell you that there is this, among other things, your body says, open the floodgates, whoosh, dopamine rush, and all these other hormones that start just get infused into your body. <laughs> right? At the same time, when Ladies, when your husband just reminds you of someday my prince will come and he's been here all along, all right? And whoa, I love that man. You get the same kind of rush internally, physiologically, hormones and all that good stuff that happens. And that creates an addiction to the object of your sexual and romantic attention and contact and endeavor. How cool is that? God made you to be physiologically and psychologically addicted to your spouse so you just can't quit them, so you will stay with them for better, for worse, richer and poorer, sickness and health, till death do you part. Keep yourself only unto them. Why? Because I'm addicted to her, to him, and I can't get enough. Good job, God. Now, That's why I've said many times before, I'll say it again, write it down or look at it online later when you say, what did you say? Sexual intercourse is meant to be a life-uniting act with life-uniting intent in a life-uniting relationship for life. Not before you say I do, not in addition to who you said I do with. Sex was created by God for a husband and wife to enjoy together after they are married. And it's a life-uniting act with life-uniting intent and a life-uniting relationship for life. Sadly, that intent and that addictive response and those desires can be tragically, sinfully misdirected into pornography. And the reason why you've told yourself countless times, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop, I have to stop, I'm not going to watch it, I'm not going to click it, I'm not going to whatever. And you do good for a little while, and you're right back at it. And some of you are as guilty as last night or this morning. Because that addictive response has got a hold of you. And physiologically and psychologically, studies show, nothing the Bible show that, psychologists and psychiatrists show that you are addicted to that pornography. Parents, you want to guess now the average age of exposure, first exposure to pornography? It's about eight years old. And I would suggest to you that if you're a parent and you are not actively filtering whatever Internet device your child has of any age, you're being irresponsible because it is everywhere. Studies tell us that people who are addicted to pornography Porn addiction decreases brain cell matter and decision-making ability. And I thought to myself and chuckled, how many times have I said, sin makes you stupid? Porn addiction increases sexual aggression and sexual violence. And studies show that one in eight porn videos now include some form of violence attached to the sexual activity. Porn addiction increases sexual dysfunction, and users need stronger and stronger stimulus to get the same place, same gratification. And that's why porn goes from what would be uh, fairly straightforward to getting more complex and more perverted until it often ends up in behavior. And not only is there the physiological addiction to it all, and what's what's ironic uh, is that people who are addicted to pornography end up being less sexually adept in performing rather than more. And studies show that porn's addictive related to mental health issues. People who are addicted to pornography battle loneliness, mood and anxiety disorders, a negative body image, both male and female, lower sexual satisfaction, sexually aggressive behavior, and increased risk, whether it be more partners or substance abuse. And what we'll find when it comes to sexual sin and sexual addictions is that, unfortunately, it's not just enough to say, it's wrong, repent, now stop it. Because if it were, <clears throat> I wouldn't be talking to anybody who's doing it. What we'll find as we go through these areas is that sexual sin the Bible says if, if any of you in Galatians, if you encounter someone caught in a sin, those of you who are spiritual with an attitude of right, of, of humility and kindness, restore such a one. Together, you can be whole. Together, your addiction can be past tense. And you're going to hear about Celebrate Recovery that's launching in January. If you're battling pornography, do yourself a huge favor and be part of that. It's, it's deal with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And as the body of Christ, together we will help each other overcome. If you want to know more about it, go to truthaboutporn.org and there's more than you'll want to know. Let's look at the next area. Let's talk about homosexuality. And uh, we'll look at Romans 1. And in Romans 1, the Bible says for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. To those who are dealing with same-sex attraction, again, I would tell you that temptation is not sin. Say temptation is not sin. Pornography, same same way. I, uh, lust. I have a. I'm in a small group with a bunch of guys that are all half my age, and uh, I don't know. If it Makes me feel younger or older, but anyway, we were talking this past week. Let's unpack the sermon. We talked about it a lot, and we talked about temptation, sexual temptation. And I said, you know, I've I've found that it doesn't work to say don't think that way, don't notice. I said I found for me that if I notice like a really gorgeous woman. Um, I actually said "hot" when I was talking to them. I was a really hot woman. Um, I will just—they talk, bounce to your eyes. I'll go, "Oh, good job, God." Boom, change subject. I mean, acknowledge. Okay, wow, good job, God. Okay, don't go any farther. All right, temptation is whoa. Sin, lustful sin is whoa. And what about you and I? Here's what we could do, and here's what you look like without your clothes on. That's where it becomes sin. The temptation. Oh, he's amazing, ladies. All right. Whoa, she hot, guys. All right. That moment is temptation. If you don't indulge it, it's not sin. Same is true, same-sex attraction. All right. And so uh, as, we, as we look at this, clearly homosexuality, male or female, is not God's design for sexuality. And I will suggest to you something Andy Stanley watched his sermon a few weeks ago. The farther you are from a problem, the easier the solution appears to be. If you don't know anybody who battles same-sex attraction, it's easy to be angry and hostile and frustrated and whatever. Don't feel that way. But as I've been preaching this through the years, it didn't take long. In fact, I used to preach What Would Jesus Say series. We'd pick topics that were somewhat controversial that would at least get people curious and coming and show them the relevance of God's word. And I remember preaching What Would Jesus Say to the Catholic Church in the 90s when that all blew up on them. Before you know it, I got a guy, probably 40 years old, sitting in my office. I'm one of those kids. Same sex attraction, when you talk about homosexuality, it didn't take long, and I'm talking to people face to face, people I care about, people I know through the years. And, okay, what do I do with this attraction? And I read a recent study. I had to go back and confirm it because I was like doing real fast research on that. That can't be right. I looked it back up. Uh, there's a Christian university out west did a recent study of 600 people sample size, so a good sample size. George Barner was involved with it, so that added legitimacy for me. They surveyed 600 millennials, age 18 to 37. Of those surveyed, 30% identified with the LGBTQ community. I was like, whew. And... Barna qualified, not sure what that means, if they're actually acting out or it's whatever, but he did say, qualified, that part of the appeal is how popular and, and appealing it has been made by media and celebrity culture. Now, hold that thought. Let's go back. Um, I got my master's degree in counseling and psychology way back in 1982, the American Psychological Association has diagnostic manuals called DSM. I think we're on DSM-5 or whatever it is now. But up until and through DSM-3, which was, they started working on that in 74, published it in 1980. Up until DSM-3, homosexuality was still seen as some form of mental disorder. We have come a long way in 40 years have come a long way that is not consistent with God's Word. That same group of millennials and other studies of millennials show that millennials tend to be starving for purpose. Isn't that ironic? The generation that was raised on soccer fields and basketball courts and whatever you want, and here's, a, here's an iPad and here's a phone. Here, I mean, indulged, longing for purpose. That same generation of millennials battles higher than most generations before them, uh, stress, depression, and anxiety. And they typically, I don't want to lump them all together, that's just an age grouping, but typically reject absolute truth but are favorable about the Bible and Jesus. And so an inadequate response to a person who's battling same-sex attraction is, well, just don't feel that way. Now, I do want to bring hope because what did it say in Second Corinthians? Such were some of you, and homosexual was in that. Uh, fornicator, all right? Premarital sex, pornography was in that. Adultery was in that, along with lots of other sins. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, and justified. When I come to Christ, regardless of where I am at my sexual behavior, He forgives me and cleanses me. And then sanctified, I am set apart. Okay, let's make this you and me. Let's go forward together with the body of Christ. And then I'm justified, regardless of my sexual past behavior and sin, God looks at me just as if I hadn't sinned. So when it comes to, if you're battling same-sex attraction, I would encourage you, first of all, to find the common ground you have with heterosexuals. Because heterosexuals, likewise, are tempted with sexual temptation. It's just for them, it's temptation with the opposite sex. For you, it's a temptation with the same sex. As a heterosexual, if you are single, you have one option, two options. Either you marry someone and live in a biblically pure marriage or you stay single, you stay celibate and honor God as a sexually pure single. If you are homosexual in your attraction, you have one less option than your heterosexual counterpart. Then stay single, stay celibate and honor God in your singleness. And certainly we said last week, you can't say, well, that's an unfulfilling life because Jesus died a 33-year-old virgin and did just fine. And let me say to those who are dealing with same-sex attraction, um, you ever heard the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? Yeah, come on, go, go, help me out here. Yes, yes? Okay, thank you. It wasn't a trick question. You're not in trouble, all right? This is hard to do this. Come on, help me out. Um, don't overestimate Uh, You know, it's so unfair because I have these same-sex desires. And boy, heterosexuals, you know, man, yeah, they're married. They have great sex and great connection and great relationship and great whatever. I've spent thousands of hours counseling people over 40 years. And I can tell you, there are loads of couples who are miserable in their loneliness who are married. And there are loads of married couples who have dysfunctional or non-existent sex lives because of all the other stuff going on in their life. So don't assume to yourself that every married person has such a better life than me and they're more relational fulfilled and more sexual gratification and woe is me and God's just making me pay because I struggle with these same-sex attractions. But if that is your struggle, I, I feel for the pain that that includes. It's pastor of uh, I was with a group of pastors of large churches, and one very well-known had made it his point to really dive in and get to know people in his congregation that identified as gay. He said, I've noticed a pattern, and sure enough, I've seen the same thing. He said, I've noticed a pattern. If the people grew up in church, they will tell you how they didn't choose homosexual orientation. They discovered, whoa, I've got desires I think I'm not supposed to have. And in their spiritual life, they prayed, they begged God to, to not only forgive them, but, but to change them and to heal them. They probably sought help. Other people to pray for them, maybe went for counseling, whatever. And after years of trying and, and, and just anxiety and angst, most of them attempted suicide. When the suicide was unsuccessful, they're like, okay, now what? And so I guess that's culture, so that's who you are. And so they look for a place of, acceptance and support and love, and guess where they find it? In the LGBTQ community. Phenomenally affirming community. I would suggest that to those of you that are dealing with same-sex attraction, and I'm certain I'm talking to people in this room and online, To pursue Christ-like intimacy with others, Jesus had his 12 disciples, Lazarus. It wasn't homosexual relationships, but it was a sense of community. Didn't have sexual intimacy. And I would would ask the church, as I spoke with one person who said, you know, okay, I have these desires. I'm trying to live a celibate life in spite of what the LGBTQ community tells me and wants to identify that I am. I want to say to the church, will you help me? Will you help us? Because if I want support and love, I can go to the LGBTQ community and have it like that. Can I walk into the doors of a church and feel love and acceptance and people will bear my burden with me and feel a sense of fulfillment and that I am creating God's image? And so I've preached for years to people who are in same-sex attraction Temptations, resist the temptation, honor God, live a celibate life, pour yourself into relationships, into purpose that God has for you, and, and honor Him. I recently was recommended a book, and I read the book. I thought, this book is kind of the how-to, because I've taken it that far, but not given the how-to. I'd recommend you, you read it if you're interested: Spiritual Friendship by Wesley Hill. The subtitle is Finding Love in the Church as a Celibate Gay Christian. Let me read just a couple of quotes. He said, Rather than interpreting my sexuality as a license to go to bed with someone or even to form a monogamous sexual partnership with them, with him, I can harness and guide its energies in dur- the direction of sexually abstinent yet intimate friendship. Being gay can lead to being chaste just as being straight can. Another quote. He says, I believe that friendship can become something much stronger and more robust than what we've often made of it in the modern world. I even believe gay and lesbian Christians who choose celibacy can find friendship to be a form of love they specifically are gifted and called to pursue. I believe the, the lonely can find family-like bonds, and I believe in the ideal of spiritual brother and sisterhood in the church. The final statement by Brother John of Taize, he said, Vibrant Christian communities where married couples and celibates live side by side in deep friendships could be a powerful countercultural sign, witnessing to the fact, almost unbelievable to many of our contemporaries, that clear limits set to the bodily expression of love do not keep one from finding happiness and fulfillment. That's a great place to say amen. Because the person who is saying, I want to honor God, I have desires that I cannot change. I've asked him to change it. I know it's not consistent with God's will. So I want to honor God in my body, live a celibate life, and pursue his will. But I have a need and a hunger for friendship that a relational God put in me from the beginning. Can I find friendship and connection with us, with you, with my church family? It should be a resounding, absolutely you can, we can. Just as the person who says, I am, I'm a Christian, and I'm struggling with a porn addiction, and I don't want anybody to know that, but we get to that place of relationship that is close enough. Paul says, when you who are spiritual encounter someone in some sin with an attitude of humility and gentleness, help correct that person and guide them to a place of restoration. My hope and prayer is that CLC is the kind of place that a person who feels that their life is so far from God can say, you know what? I know what they believe, and I know that I'm not there yet. But when I come there, I feel convicted but not condemned. And they are loving people who respond to me like I think Jesus would. And all I know is I want to be around them. I want to share my burdens with them. I want to pray together with them. And they are either helping me live a godly life, or I'm already there, and they are sustaining me in that. Let's talk briefly about transgenderism. A word that I don't even know if it existed when I became your pastor in 1990. It is the general belief, and I didn't look this up, that basically I might look like a male, be born with male anatomy, but that's not really who I am and needs to be corrected or vice versa. And our culture, for some reason, has just kind of done sexual daylight savings times with that. Okay, let's all decide and let's all agree that you look like a male or look like a female and you have all the body parts of that. And other, but if you say you're not, okay, we'll just agree you're not. Let me push back against that. Let me share with you what Scripture says in Genesis 1.27. We talked about it last week. God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And now let's hold that thought and go to David, who is just writing about just the wondrous, incredible creativity and goodness of God. And in Psalm 139, verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And let me just push back from a biblical worldview perspective, from God's truth perspective. Your gender was not assigned to you by a medical person in the hospital in which you were born. Your gender was given to you by your creator, long before you breathed your first breath when you were still in your mother's womb. Anything other than that is professing to be wise. They became foolish, as our culture is doing. Now, it is short-sighted to tell people, well, just don't feel that way. Understand the pain and confusion that they're dealing with, and let's come alongside them to try to help them forward in that. And what really sobered me saying things that are trite like don't feel that way or God doesn't make mistakes. I find that trite, pithy statements only feel good to the person saying it, not to the person receiving it. And I find Satan's handiwork so at work in this whole issue. A UCLA study identified 41% of transgender or gender nonconforming people attempted suicide, which is phenomenally higher than the national average. Uh, Let me read for you from uh, the comments of Dr. Paul McHugh. He was the psychiatrist-in-chief at John Hopkins and then became the distinguished service professor of psychiatry at John Hopkins. And uh, he basically said that transgenderism is a mental disorder that merits treatment and that sex change is biologically impossible. In a Wall Street Journal editorial, He said transgender surgery is not the solution for people who suffer a disorder of assumption, the notion that their maleness or femaleness is different than what nature assigned to them biologically. He also reported on a new study showing that the suicide rate among transgendered people who had reassignment surgery is 20 times higher than the suicide rate among non transgender people. He also quoted studies from Vanderbilt and London's Portman University, or Portman Clinic, of children who expressed trans- transgender feelings. And he said, The pro-transgender advocates do not want to know that studies show between 70 and 80% of children who expressed transgender feelings spontaneously lose those feelings. Did you catch that? So you have a little four- or five-year-old saying, I think I'm a girl, I think I'm a boy, and our culture is, oh, and let's pay attention to that, and let's put them, he goes on to say that, uh, he reported that there are misguided doctors working with very young children who seem to imitate the opposite sex, and they'll administer puberty-delaying hormones to render later sex change surgeries less onerous even though the drug stunts the children's growth and risks causing sterility. And he said, such action comes close to child abuse, given that close to 80% of those kids will abandon their confusion and grow naturally into their adult life. Dr. Mahew went on to say, for those who had sexual reassignment surgery, most said they were satisfied with the operation, but their subsequent psychosocial adjustments were no better than those who didn't have the surgery. So at Hopkins, he said, we stopped doing sex reassignment surgery since producing a satisfied but still troubled patient seemed an inadequate reason for surgically amputating normal organs. When I read that, I thought of an encounter I had with a person who is a transgender. It was when I preached, what would you say, to Caitlyn Jenner several years ago. And after the service, they said, hey, someone wants to meet you in the VIP room. And so I met them there and uh The first thing they said was, Well, first of all, thanks for not being hateful with your sermon. And they were presenting as a female and with tears coming down their face. They told me the story. You know, I was, I grew up in a local church and I begged God to change me, to help me. And I was miserable before I did this change. They were a male. And now that I've done this, I'm still miserable. I thought, isn't that just like the devil? He'll give you the first bite of the apple. First bite of the apple is delicious. The pleasures of sin, all of our sin, are real. The gratification, the benefit, but it's for a season. And. Uh, Dr. McHugh concludes by saying sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex assignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather they become feminized men or masculinized women. And to all of the above, I would say that society encourages us. That's what you feel? Forget the restrictions and restraints. And uh, in Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read the very last verse. It It lists all this ungodly behavior. And it says, Although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And it used to be popular when coming out and homosexual lifestyle was new. You'd see somebody on a talk show, and they would come out, and, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so, so happy for you to be able to do that. Now it's transgenderism. And it give hearty approval to those who do the same. And then uh, let's talk briefly about sex outside of marriage. And then I want to kind of land this. Turn my notes a little too soon. I label this adultery, but sex before marriage, let's call it sex outside of marriage. Sex is a life-uniting act, life-uniting intent, in a life-uniting relationship for life. So Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators, that's sex, sexual behavior, pornography, uh, intercourse, whatever, outside of marriage. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And there's another verse in 1 Corinthians 6 that explains it a little further. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. There is something to it. We used to have a discipleship class that would say, when you have intercourse with someone, there is a soul tie connected there. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It may have been people ago, years ago, but there's some kind of a bond there. We don't know how to break it. The two become one. If you are currently in a relationship with someone, a sexual relationship, but you're not married to them, stop it, Jesus would say. Flee. If you have to get help to be accountable for it, do it. If it's an adulterous relationship, don't don't say the goodbye, don't send the final text, be done, they never hear from you again. Outside of marriage, same kind of thing. Flee it. And we'll close with uh, the unwanted call of Christ. This is a call to all of us I wish this verse in some ways was not in the Bible. I don't like what it says. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I like indulging myself, not denying myself. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Who loses life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? What will it profit them if they have all the sexual pleasure that society offered and they lose their soul? What will it profit them if culture just applauds them and celebrates them in their sexual exploits and they lose their soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for their soul? And when I read that, I can't help but think of the young man that we interviewed in Oregon District a few weeks ago. We put him on screen and he said, I grew up in church and they were good at saying, live how we tell you, not how you feel. God help us if we all live how we feel. Because there are times other people better be real glad I don't live how I feel. Are there ever times you feel like losing your temper, smashing stuff, telling people off, going off a moral deep end? I mean, I don't know. You you name the binge or the whatever. If I go by how I feel, it's devastating for me and harmful to others. The Bible tells us not to be ruled by our emotions, feel them, experience them, but not be ruled by them. And so let me land on the thought that Jesus cares and he came to help you with your burdens, help you with your sexual burdens. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourself under the hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, all of it, because he cares for you. Sexual sin, Sexual temptation, failure, disappointment, loneliness, isolation, cast your anger, Tell him about it. Be of sober spirit and on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. Sexual pain, whether it be ours, that of a loved one, whether we've created it, chosen it, been inflicted upon us, can be a huge source of angst and turmoil, anguish. In Psalm 56, verse 8, says, You've seen me tossing and turning through the night. You've collected all my tears and preserved them in your bottle. You've recorded every one in your book. You may not feel or believe it, but God sees your pain, sees your struggle, sees your pleading and your begging, and cares. Romans chapter 8 tells us to live for the long haul. I consider the sufferings of this present time. Even if you feel like, wow, why am I a male or a female? Or why do I have these desires? Or why do I have this bondage in my life? Why am I prone to that temptation? The sufferings, the moral sufferings of this present time, not just physical and spiritual, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what is the glory revealed? The last book of the Bible, second to last chapter, Revelation 21. The Apostle John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God is among men. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every shameful every lonely, every brokenhearted tear from their eyes, there'll no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And we asked ourselves, how do we close this service? Where do we go with that? And we thought, let's close it with communion. Because in communion, Jesus talked about the bread being his body. And the cup represents healing and forgiveness. And if there is anything we collectively need as the body of Christ around issues of sexuality, many of us have needs in our body. Many of us have needs for healing. Many have needs for forgiveness. And so the team is going to share this song with you. I encourage you to reflect on what you've heard. How does it apply to you? And if, and if it doesn't apply much, then thank God that he's spared you and your loved ones and those you know. But after they've shared this song, we'll take the elements together. seated for a moment as you hold the elements represents the body of Christ we're about to take it in representing Christ with us, God with us what needs do you have about your body in the sexual way do its appetites need to be curbed need help in directing it in a God honoring way has it been wounded in a source of pain confusion tell him about it the blood of Christ represents healing and forgiveness do you need healing soul deep do the things related to your maleness or femaleness ask him for it you need forgiveness for things you've done in this body that you know don't honor him based on his word maybe culture says it's fine do you need forgiveness ask for it Because Jesus said in, in the Gospel of Matthew, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Would you bow with me in prayer? And before I lead us, you talk to God briefly in your own words. About your body. About your pain, your healing needed, your forgiveness. Maybe on behalf of a loved one your struggle, your heartache, whatever it is, talk to him. Jesus, we hold a representation of your body broken for us and we bring to you our broken bodies. You create us in your image, male and female, and it seems like Satan has been targeting our sexuality ever since. We bring you our brokenness and pray that you would bring us comfort and make us whole. We bring you our sin and ask for your forgiveness. We bring you our wounds and ask for healing. And that you would give us the grace and the fruit of the spirit of self-control to either live a sexually pure single life that honors you or a sexually pure married life that does the same. And we pray that we as the body of Christ will be a loving, compassionate place that encourages and strengthens each other to be who we are created to be in your image, obedient and full of your love. In your name we pray. Let's take the bread and the cup together. last few minutes if you just remain for this final song. And as you leave, you're sexually going to be standing at your section if you want prayer, or you can go by the VIP room. Next weekend we'll have some helpful resources for you. In the meantime, join us Wednesday night for the Deeper Dive in the West Odd, and be here next week as well as we have some, some marriages. We're going to celebrate some weddings as well. But listen to this song that speaks to all of our need and the power of God's presence with who we are.